Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the March 17, 2020 edition of Ask a Leader. You know, folks, I'm going to dedicate the show. I don't do it very often, but it just feels like I need to do it today. This live show to truck drivers keeping the supplies a coming, the cashiers who continue to scan those supplies at the check stand, and all the 99 percenters who are hanging on for financial dear life. Today, in what we all know to be a highly fluid and changeable situation, we'll cover the medical and psychological aspects of novel coronavirus or COVID-19. Or as Dr. Antonio Fauci has been saying, you're always behind where you think you are in situations like these. And don't forget that, folks. First, we'll hear today from Dr. Michelle Chung, pediatric epidemiologist at the Orange County Health Agency, who will speak to the medical issues. In the second segment, Professor Roxanne Silver of UCI's Department of Psychological Science, Department of Medicine, Program and Public Health, returns to the program to take up the psychosocial aspects. We'll be right back after station break. Welcome back to the show. My first guest is Dr. Michelle Chung, medical officer with the newly created Community and Nursing Services at the Orange County Health Agency. Prior to that, she was Deputy Medical Director of Epidemiology and Physician Specialist for the Infectious Disease Preparedness at Orange County Health Agency, where she was involved in physician education and provided clinical and epidemiological expertise for communicable diseases surveillance, outbreak investigations, and public health emergency preparedness. Before coming to the Orange County Health Agency, she worked at a hospital-based pediatric infectious diseases consultant and also assisted with influenza surveillance at the state level. She's a volunteer associate clinical professor in pediatrics at UCI. Dr. Chung completed her Bachelor of Arts from Princeton, her Master's in Public Health at UC Berkeley, her medical degree at Jefferson Medical College in Pennsylvania, a preventative medicine residency at UC Berkeley, University of California, San Francisco, and a Pediatrics Infectious Disease Fellowship at University of California, San Francisco. She comes to us today, I believe, from Orange? Orange County. Okay. All right. So I mentioned that she is a parent of two teenage daughters. Worth mentioning as she offers public health insight as to school closures that are being posted around Orange County. And I'm going to keep try and put the time print here because things keep changing. This is March 17 that we're posting you on the developments. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Dr. Michelle Chung. Thank you. Well, could you give us the latest? I've got the March 16 numbers of cases in Orange County. Maybe you could post us for today's latest as far as the all the breakdown, the travel, person-to-person, community-acquired cases of COVID-19. Sure. So we don't have to update the numbers every day on the website. So these numbers are still what we're posting from yesterday. So as of yesterday, March 16th, we have 22 cases of COVID-19 in Orange County that have been tested through a laboratory. That includes 13 that were travel-related, four that were acquired person-to-person, four that are community-acquired, and one that's still under investigation. So what this means is 13 have a known history of travel to an area that has sustained transmission. The four person-to-person were close contacts to one of those cases. And then those four community-acquired, what that means is that they don't have a known source, meaning they didn't have a known history of travel to an affected area, or they weren't a close contact to a confirmed case. So we don't really know where they got it, which then means that there is evidence now of community transmission in Orange County. So the breakdown, is there a a, a useful demographic? Graphic breakdown, other, I mean, it's mainly those that are in their 60s that where these cases are showing up. 
No, so um, so far we have no children affected, and our 18 to 49-year-olds, so our younger adults, we have 11 cases, and then for our middle-aged adults, 7, 50 to 64-year-olds, and in our seniors so far, we have four cases. Okay, it's less there. Okay, uh, all right. And the most at risk are those with heart disease, diabetes, lung disease. Does that, lung disease, does that include asthma? There's a lot of people asking about that because there's quite, quite the high incidence of asthma around this region. So those lung conditions do include any chronic lung conditions. Of course, each patient is different in their underlying medical conditions and how well they're controlled. So it, that, the people at greatest risk do include the seniors. And then people with chronic medical conditions, including a compromised immune system, chronic heart and lung conditions, and diabetes. So I'd like to, for you, frankly, actually, to, to talk to some of the interagency coordination. And, and I think, speaking honestly, I, I know you have the, the institutional mantle. You're protective of the agency and the extent to which you can weigh in critically about how things are going on in other agencies. I, I would like you to at least give us what you can. But with the coordination, there's also, there's optics. There are, for me, it's kind of maddening the optics we're seeing on the federal level of how we all comport in public. How How is that interagency working? And what do you think of where those opportunities are being lost with chances to demonstrate good social uh, distancing? So just to give you an idea of who we collaborate with in public health. So we communicate regularly with the state health department, the California Department of Health, and also through them to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. We have regular um, conference calls with the state health department, and they also have conference calls with healthcare facilities. The state health department shares with us on a routine basis their guidance and recommendations, most of which are coming from the Centers for Disease Control as well. So in terms of that information, that does run smoothly, and we have very frequent communication with our state and federal partners for, for public health actions. And also when we had our first case, here back in January, we were constantly um, getting guidance from the state and the CDC, and there was a CDC team here helping us with that investigation as well. As within Orange County, we are part of the operational area, and we work with our hospitals, other healthcare facilities, as well as county and city emergency management. We also provide guidance to the schools, the Department of Education, and other government and community agencies. We also talk to colleges and universities, so we have routine communication about communicable disease exposures, including at UCI, right. especially the last time through when we had our big measles outbreak. We constantly were communicating. Um, many of the local colleges and universities also participate in our influenza surveillance and receive our newsletters and updates about communicable diseases. We also talk to the um, college student health physicians, including with UCI and also with UCI Medical Center. And we, um, our staff did assist also with the education at UCI um, with that public panel on coronavirus that you did last month. So we, the public health department definitely does collaborate with the different agencies um, and coordinate with them. I know it's very frustrating for people when they hear the mixed messages sometimes yes. on the news, and it is a very rapidly evolving situation. So there are definitely recommendations that change on a daily, if not more frequently, basis, and so it's hard to keep up. But um, we are trying to communicate with all our different agencies, keep those recommendations up to date, and disseminating those as we can. And in the interest of time, I'm going to post on the podcast summary all of the numbers to call. The social services have closed, but they're available over the phone and remotely. So I'm going to put all those numbers up with the websites and also yours, too, for people to get postings uh, from, you know, day to day. So I... Wanted just to say, though, all of this that you're doing, I, I want for people to have a little perspective, a fiscal background, that in the last, since 2008, the Orange County Board of Supervisors discretionary money spent has been reduced by 30%. It's down $68 million, and the social service 
spending has been down by 28%. So there there could be more institutional support for all of you over there, Dr. Chung. So I just want audience to know that. Well, we're now in the mitigation phase. We're way past containment. Could you break down what you think people still aren't understanding about the distinctions between quarantining, isolation, self-isolation, and the what are the latest social distancing requirements features? So all of these things, the goal is to decrease transmission of the disease. Like you said, there's we're not going to stop it now, but we want to slow it down. And as a situation evolves, different um, different recommendations play a different role. So, for example, with our first case, or when there's a new introduction of a disease or our first few cases, we isolate the ill, and then we do extensive contact tracing and quarantine the contacts to try to limit further spread. So generally, isolation in public health is meant for people who are ill to keep them separate from other people so that they don't continue to spread illness. Quarantine for public health is you separate people who have been exposed who may not yet be ill, but the goal is to prevent them from spreading disease if they become infectious either before or while they're first developing symptoms. So with the actual social distancing, that's what we do once um, there is the fear of the, um, the, I'm sorry, not using the word fear, right, but once there is the the concern for a pandemic where there's widespread, um, there may be widespread infection, we want to slow down that spread. So that's something to spread, to give distance between people, to decrease the risk of infections. And therefore, if we can slow down the spread, we give time for development of the vaccines and for any treatment to start being coming along. We also are decreasing the burden on our healthcare system because if all the cases came at once and we had a huge peak early on, our healthcare system would be completely overwhelmed. Uh, and I have so some. That's also meant to protect our people who are at, inc- are at severe risk for illness. So the seniors that I mentioned before, the people with underlying medical conditions, those are all people that um, we're also trying to, pr- to protect with these social distancing measures. And you did mention these measures changed very rapidly over yes. the last several days. Initially, it was to cancel public gatherings that were 250 people at more. Then uh, over the weekend, the Centers for Disease Control said 50 people, and then um, the president said 10. Along the way as well, the governor closed bars, wineries, and breweries over the weekend, and now today also is recommending that restaurants close unless they can still keep open their um, drive through and their delivery services. Well, so these are all things meant to decrease the, trans- the chances of transmission by decreasing social contact really trying to emphasize that people put that distance about six feet between them, if able, so that um, they can help decrease the transmission and slow down the rate in our community. Dr. Chung, I must say, though, it was impossible in the grocery store setting to stay six feet away from it. That was absolutely impossible. Are public health officials giving some kind of advisory about that? So there was guidance put out from the state about how to manage facilities that are staying open in terms of trying to keep as much as much as possible yeah. that six feet, um, you know, to reduce uh, stagger shifts or uh, stagger people coming in, minimizing the number of people standing in line or in the building. So those are all gu- um, guidances that have come out from the state. But it it was we, there was no six feet yesterday when I went in for and I, folks I was only getting a few things. <laughs> So for those of you who've just joined us, you're listening to Ask Leader here on Radio KUCI. My guest is Dr. Michelle Chung, medical officer at the Orange County Healthcare Agency, and we're talking about the changing conditions of managing the COVID-19 spread around Orange County. So we're talking about some of these protocols that are changing. Well, I, I've been wanting to know, because I, I think it's not getting its due, is how are the what is the health and the safety of the healthcare providers? What are you hearing? How are they're in the front line? They are first responders. How how is that being operationalized to try to keep them safe? 
So the, the Centers for Disease Control has recommendations of what kind of personal protective equipment should be used if they're seeing a patient who they suspect have the COVID-19. So um, with these recommendations, when a virus is new, the CDC um, starts with the most protective until they know how, what, how the virus is exactly transmitted. So with this, um, they are recommended to wear the respirator or surgical mask, um, a gown, gloves, and eye protection. There have been areas where there, there, aren't, where there weren't enough respirators, and then also other personal protective equipment may be in short supply as well. So the CDC has re-looked at the data and has now made the recommendation of what to do if there are shortages in certain items. And then also there have the stockpiles that we have at the federal and state level. Some of those, the personal protective equipment has been shipped out to help relieve some of those shortages. Well, I have to ask, are you confident that we're stocked sufficiently here for now in Orange County? You know, I don't know the numbers on that, but I know yeah. that is something that we are working on with our um, health emergency management and emergency medical services, as well as with the state. So, there, you know, there's been lots of conversations about specific sorts of management on the individual level, including a discussion, it's percolating upward, more and more, I think, are considering this using soap versus using sanitizers. So there's cost benefits to using a sanitizer indefinitely. Uh, is, what, do, tell us what your preference is and go from there. <laughs> You know, I actually don't know the cost of those agents, but the Centers for Disease Control recommend that either hand washing with soap and water, making sure to do the full 20 seconds, or using an alcohol-based hand sanitizer, having at least 60% of um, alcohol is um, recommended. And either one is fine. Right now I know sanitizers are difficult to come by, so um, whatever is readily available is what people should be using. What I mean by cost is whether the sanitizers indiscriminately wipe out every single germ, whether it's a beneficial or a not or a pathological sort of a bacteria, that if this is the sanitizer is creating some kind of disease resistant bacteria. So right now, I don't think that with the hand sanitizers, that's um, something that's changing our recommendation right now. Um, You know, with soap and water, most of the benefit from that is friction. You're decreasing the viral load by um, mechanical removal. And then with the alcohol, um, you're inactivating the viruses. And I have not heard any guidance right now to stop using either one of those. So it is definitely recommended whatever you have to be using that and doing it often. Um, especially, you know, after you're touching your mouth or, or face or after you're touching a surface that might be contaminated. And as to what people are taking in the way of medication, advisories about anti-inflammatory drugs, are you in messaging that, Dr. Chung? So those um, things that have been heard in the media, those are statements from the French government that um, they're is some report, there are some reports that some of the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, which we call NSAIDs, that those include like ibuprofen, naproxen, those kind of drugs. There were some reports from France that right. they saw some adverse effects in patients with COVID-19. But it's really unclear where this information is coming from, oh. and there hasn't been published data and no controlled trial. So right now, there's no change in terms of the CDC guidance. But in general, with these NSAIDs, because they do have some side effects related to the stomach and kidney, if people have issues with their kidney, um, they are used less. And um, it's, there's no recommend, recommendation right, right now to avoid them if they're needed. But be sure to use the correct dosage and limit the use in people with kidney disease and for any of these medications, either the ibuprofen or the acetaminophen, which is Tylenol, um, you're not supposed to be taking them for prolonged periods of time without consulting your physician. So it's kind of a fine line for you as the Orange County Health Agency that you're not practicing individualized medicine, but putting out advisories. That must be a little bit delicate for you to maintain that role. So um, we follow the CDC guidance on the on the clinical information yes. for the advisories. So that is what we push out. Okay. So let's talk about the measures the individuals can take 
I don't know which ones concern you the most. How, how about the the self-triage use of any of the emergency or urgent care facilities? Because people have other things going on. I, I had a friend who, like, shredded up her shin off of a, a sharp surface, and she needed a lot of stitches. I have another friend who has, you know, a, like a chronic sore throat. And the, these people want to be seen. But how, how do you guide people about showing up at these care facilities? So first I want to, would like to back up and talk about measures individuals can take to help decrease the risk of getting infected. Yes, infected please in do. General. So, you know, avoiding exposure, avoiding close contact with people, trying to keep that six feet as much as possible. You know, instead of shaking hands, they right. can wave or right. nod their head in acknowledgement. And then, of course, washing your hands, as I mentioned before, with yes. soap and water or using the alcohol-based hand sanitizers. You want to avoid sick people as, as much as possible and be routinely cleaning and disinfecting commonly touched surfaces around you and in your home. Um, if you are ill with a cough, you should be covering your cough with a tissue and then disposing of the tissue in the trash can and then washing your hands. If you're ill, and this goes into what you're saying about right. um, going to medical care, um, so if you're ill, if, that is, if you have symptoms of fever, cough, shortness of breath, that might suggest that you have coronavirus, it's really important that you stay home. If you have to go out, if you do need to seek medical care, um, you want to be putting on a mask um, and calling first so that they can, the medical facility can tell you how they want to handle it so that you don't expose other people in the facility. Um, as far as other people seeking medical care, if, right. you know, definitely if they need to see the physician, then they should be going in, but if for minor things, they may want to just call first and see what they can do over the phone to avoid going into those facilities, which are probably pretty overburdened at this time. So then what is the inventory, I mean, everybody wants to know, for the testing for COVID-19 in Orange County? How, how are you stocked and what do you anticipate will eventually be adding to your stock? So right now, um, we do have tests available through the public health department, but um, there's also testing available through the community, through commercial labs. So in public health, we do still test based on criteria. So we're testing the people that we feel are the highest risk, either for infection or getting severe illness or causing more spread. So, but any clinician can order the other tests themselves. Um, we are recommending that all testing be done through a clinician. We're not accepting people just walking up and asking to be tested. Okay, okay. So you've talked about the symptoms and the reminder, we, uh, this is a moment you can remind everybody to make sure they're up to date on their flu vaccinations. And so are you seeing an uptick in people getting those? I um, mean, you know, I haven't really heard that about okay. the actual numbers of flu vaccine because all the vaccine isn't done through the county, so we don't have that data readily available. But it is, um, since flu is still circulating, it is a good idea if you have not been vaccinated this season that you do get vaccinated against influenza. So that will not prevent coronavirus, but there's a lot of no. overlap in those symptoms, so it could help kind of decrease the risk of getting flu and, those, and decrease the risk of getting those kind of symptoms that might worry you about coronavirus. I like without really, I don't mean to enter into an alarmist tone, but I do want to give you this platform to speak to the institutional capacity. We will, we will see an increase of a certain kind of incidents of COVID-19. And I don't think I really want to read from an epidemiologist in Bergamo, Italy, but she has dire experiences that they're, they're handling in that hot spot in Bergamo, which I'm assuming is pretty close to Milan. How can you speak to us about institutional readiness as the anticipated increase of incidents of COVID-19 occurs in Orange County? So we definitely will have more cases and throughout Orange County and throughout the whole United States. And that's why some of these uh, more dire social distancing measures are being put in place to really try to slow that down. 
as I mentioned before, our healthcare system, if everyone came at once ill and we had a huge peak, they could potentially be overwhelmed as well. So that is why we're really working to try to decrease and slow down that transmission so that we can spread those cases out over time and hopefully overall decrease the number of cases that would eventually get sick and the impact on health in our county. Dr. Chung, so how can residents best use your agency as a resource? And where, where should they go call in that kind of, what, what's the best resource for So I would recommend they go to our website, ochealthinfo.com. We're trying to keep it up to date with the numbers and guidance. And then also the CDC website has a lot of guidance as well. So if it's just general information like that, there's frequently asked questions. There's guidance for specific populations as well as for, you know, different groups like child care schools, community businesses, employers, things like that. Um, So that's all on our website and the CDC's website. Um, We do have a health referral line that's available Monday through Friday. Um, That's 1-800-564-8448. Right. But if it's something that's a general question, they could go go to the website. And as I said, there are social service agencies that are going online and on the phone now to, to service people's needs, and I will post the Medi-Cal, the CalFresh, the General Relief, and the in-home supportive service numbers. Well, as we draw down this interview, Dr. Chung, is there something we haven't covered you think is essential that you convey? I think we've covered most of it, but really encouraging people to take those personal preventive measures to stay healthy, wash their hands, um, clean and disinfect, cover their costs, and stay home if they're ill. Um, also to, to follow the public health guidance because it's really important that everyone's doing their own part for this right now. Um, I, I do also want to add to um, yes. for people who are high risk of severe illness, it's important to, for them to have the groceries or their medications at home since they are supposed to be staying at home. So if there are friends or family members who could help drop it off at their homes, that would be great. Of course, they'd want to keep that social distancing as well and not be bringing, um, you know, going in and spending a lot of time with the seniors, but just to be able to drop things off for them, that would be wonderful. You know, one thing that I did mention earlier when you mentioned social distancing now, I read in one particular platform that if you can smell another person's food, you're too close to them. Well, that really depends on the food, I think. <laughs> Some food's pretty bunched in, in the circulation in the room, but well, I haven't heard that one been used. Well, that's, see, that's, there's all kinds of interesting things. Well, this has been really helpful. I know your plate is super full. Dr. Chung, thank you for your time with so many demands upon you. Thank you. That was Dr. Michelle Chung, medical officer at the Orange County Healthcare Agency. We'll be right back after a very short station break with Dr. Roxanne Silver, nationally recognized expert on how we're experiencing public trauma. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Returning to my show is my next guest, Dr. Roxanne Silver, nationally recognized on how we experienced public trauma like the novel coronavirus. She is professor of psychological science, medicine, and public health, associate director of the advanced program at UCI. This is a shorthand sort of introduction. Uh, I have to trim a lot because we've got a lot to cover in this second segment. So, Dr. Roxanne Silver has spent three decades focusing on coping with traumatic life events, personal losses, and collective trauma, stress, social psychology, and health psychology. Her work on larger collective events such as terror attacks, war, and natural disasters across the world are why I brought her back today. She's guided governments in the U.S. and abroad in the aftermath of terrorist attacks and earthquakes and served on the numerous senior advisory committees and task forces for the U.S. Department of Homeland Security 
advising the department and its component agencies on the psychological impact of disasters and terrorism. She's also testified in Congress on the role of social science research in disaster preparedness and response and the impact of the media following disasters. We'll talk about that for sure today. Roxanne Silver is the president-elect of the Federation of Associations in Behavioral and Brain Sciences, served as president of Society of Experimental Social Psychology, is a founding director and chair of the board of directors of Psychology Beyond Borders. She's fellow of the American Psychological Association, Association for Psychological Science, Academy of Behavioral Medicine Research, and Society of Experimental Social Psychology. She's been recognized by many organizations over the years all over the world. She prizes, though, as she said in the last interview here, the recognition from her students. This pedagogy is as potent as her, her research in all these uh, national and international agencies. Roxanne Silver completed her Bachelor's of Arts in Psychology and her PhD in Social Psychology at Northwestern University. She comes today from her home office. She's staying in place. Welcome back to Ask a Leader, mm -hmm. Dr. Roxanne Silver. Thank you. Thank you. Well, Let's first talk about what's all, it's on all of our minds. Why, Roxanne Silver, is this crisis different? Why does it feel different? Why is it different from the ones I mentioned fleetingly in your introduction? There are many reasons why this particular event feels different and I think indeed is different in terms of how we as individuals and as a society are coping. First of all, there's e there continues to be enormous uncertainty and ambiguity, both in terms of the scope of the crisis as well as how long it will continue. And typically, we don't have that level of uncertainty. Oftentimes, at the kind of research that you have referenced and the kinds of stuff projects that I have conducted previously have been about a natural disaster, earthquake, or firestorm, or um, hurricane, or a mass violence event like a school shooting. Those events happen, and then we regroup, and we re rebound, and we respond, and we cope. In this case, we are currently right in the middle of a storm that we don't know how long will last or how bad it will get. And we're forced to wait for information that is forthcoming but is changing rapidly because this is a new threat and we are, <clears throat> excuse me, awaiting more information about how it is transmitted, how it can be addressed in terms of the medical treatments, and we're also awaiting a vaccine. So I guess with this uncertainty, it's there's moving targets in the protocols that are changing. And I think, mm -hmm. and I think let's let, I'm going to give you a chance to be, uh, you know, really critical here about the opportunities that have been lost. I'm going to point out, call it out on the national level, the optics have not been good. The the mm -hmm. changeable sort of signing on to we've got we've got lots of trouble here, Houston. I've got really and so the mm -hmm. that the mm -hmm. sense of the gravity has been a slowly unspooling sort of acknowledgement on the the national level where in previous disasters it was sort of like owned and and sort of acknowledged at the the get go. Doesn't that muddy mm -hmm. how mm -hmm. we are handling this uncertainty? I think it's clear that the conflicting information, perhaps miscommunication or certainly confusing communication, has exacerbated the problem. But I think that we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that this is, in fact, an unfolding disaster in slow motion. And although perhaps we as a country could have been better prepared and undoubtedly should have been better prepared, I think that we must recognize that the people who were making decisions were in the midst of this uh, unfolding crisis themselves. I think it's very important going forward that the messaging is clear, is not confusing, 
is targeted appropriately to individuals so that they can hear the message and understand their risk and respond appropriately. And I think that, as I've said, because this is such a fast-changing environment, I think that any things that occurred a couple of weeks ago are just not relevant today. I think it's important now that communication be clear, that we use authoritative information in making our decisions not to uh, overly rely on what our friends tell us or what we read on social media, but in fact look for authoritative sources who are trying to update their materials by the hour. I guess, Roxanne Silver, I wanted to mention, bring up how this, the incubation period of COVID-19 being up to almost two weeks is mm-hmm. uh, confounding every aspect of responding to this, isn't it? I mean, we're, nobody knows where the symptoms are going to be. It's, it's really an invisible threat, and that, I think, also adds to the stress of this. It, it Early on, it was assumed that people could only transmit the illness if they were symptomatic. And I think that that has been revised in recent days to convey that people can transmit the virus without having symptoms. So essentially everybody could be a potential source of contamination and everybody can be a potential threat. That's another thing about this event that is so different. After many other crises, we see individuals in a community pulling together, joining together with, with individuals who share their values. Many people reach out to churches, synagogues, places of worship to join together to cope with a crisis that has already occurred. In this particular crisis, we are strongly encouraged, if not banned from joining together. And so it is going against our normal inclination to reach out to friends, family, spend time together and um, cope as a group. We're now being asked to social distance. And this, I think, also adds to the both the, uh, the stress that people are feeling as well as the relative uniqueness of this crisis compared to others that we've experienced in the last several decades. And as it is showing up in numerous kinds of publications about how social a creature we are and how this this the cruelty of isolation is a kind of a well it, we can talk about that the social mm-hmm. separation mm-hmm. is a, there's it's opening up to what it's a phenomenon you may have been reading about yourself Social mm-hmm. recession. Have you seen heard mm-hmm. that term? I, I have not heard that term, but I do know that many researchers and public health in professionals are concerned about the social isolation and the potential physical health consequences of loneliness. We know over the last several decades that loneliness is a strong predictor of physical health problems when people don't have Mm. a loved one or someone close with whom they can share their deepest thoughts and feelings and their anxieties and worries. Um, So I I believe that loneliness could be a a big problem. I think that uh, the challenges for individuals at the front line are that they are also a potential source of threat to their families. Um, so th- this is this is really an event of unprecedented proportion in our country, certainly during my lifetime. For those of you who've just joined us, you're listening to Ask a Leader, and my guest is Dr. Roxanne Silver, Professor of Psychological Science, Medicine, Public Health, and she's an Associate Director of the Advanced Program. She's an international expert in the field of stress and coping as we talk about the public trauma experienced with the uptick, uh, opening up of the COVID-19 pandemic now. I guess pan- did pandemic sort of, once that was declared, that that change sort of intensify the, the ill at ease, obviously, with um, people? Uh, I, how they- I think that, I, I think that the... Um, the national, when when it became de- a declared national emergency, which I believe was last Friday, which seems like a lifetime ago, but was 
just a few days. I really do think that that shifted. I think that people who might not have been taking this seriously might have paid a little bit more attention. I do know that not everybody, uh, it is still the case that not everybody sees this the threat that some of us see, that some professionals have been clear, clearly um, shouting as loud as anyone would hear for several weeks. Yeah. Uh, I do think that the shift in declaring it a national emergency um, made a big difference. Certainly, the World Health Organization's declaration of it as a pandemic also, I think, helped bring this to the forefront of the news. I believe that at this point, the news cycle is almost exclusively about this virus and its spread. And I think that that wasn't the case a mere week ago. So, Dr. Silver, it's sort of the, the that's a fine line between being the message giving clarity and it being alarming. Mm hmm. Yes, I think that for some people, though, it required that alarming message for them to take it seriously. And again, I was just speaking yesterday to mm -hmm. a, a family member who lives in Chicago okay. who was describing the fact that the city of Chicago canceled their St. Patrick's Day parade in order to prevent people from gathering. Right. But in response to that, many of the same people who were going to go to the parade were showing up at the bars. Oh. And I believe that that was why the decision was made in Chicago to shut down restaurants and bars sooner than we were seeing other places do that. I think that that's because the, the crisis, as I said, um, while we're in the middle of the tornado, it's still sunny out in some parts of the country. And I think that individuals who are not in the, in that, uh, the, um, in the middle of the tornado right now have not been necessarily paying attention to or listening to or perhaps believing the communications. And, and that gets back to the point about um, miscommunication yes. and conflicting communication. And people often, social psychology tells us that pe people often hear what they want to hear. Right. So it's certainly much more comforting to hear that the problem is not as bad as uh, some are um, conveying. And I think that that leads people, some people, not all of course, but some people to minimize the threat. And I think what we're hearing now from the public health professionals is that it's time that we don't minimize the threat, that we recognize that it could be worse before it's better. And if, in fact, that was a false alarm, I think people are still saying it's better for people to be safe than sorry. So let's talk about what people can do in addition to making themselves, uh, to helping cope better with this. There was the discussion of trimming one's consumption of media, and then to the point of being of maintaining accurate communications mm -hmm. is that mm -hmm. listen to the interviews where there are experts and not celebrities. <laughs> mm -hmm. I think, you know, it, it, the media is a double-edged sword here. Yes. It's extremely important because it is the means through which we are learning about the changing science from this rapidly evolving threat. And I think that it's our best place to get the information boiled down so that it's um, palatable for the general population and so somebody else can read the detailed science and the statistics and help interpret that for us. So the media serves an extremely important, I would say, critical role. However, it also can serve to amplify the distress because we're hearing repetitious stories. Um, we're hearing little new information. We're hearing about hoarding of toilet paper over and over again. And I'm not sure that those messages are helpful. In fact, they may uh, exacerbate the distress. And so my colleagues and I recommend that People seek out uh, authoritative information, the World Health Organization websites, the 
um, Center for Disease Control website, the local public health departments, all are providing the latest science and the latest recommendations based on the most recent science. And I think that reading that information and using that to guide our behavior is far more likely to be helpful than to read social media posts which say, my cousin told me, fill in the blank. Uh, I think that those kind of myths and pieces of misinformation can be rapidly disseminated on social media without anybody monitoring it, without anybody vetting the veracity of what is being distributed. And so that's why I think it is so important to both pay attention to the media, but in palatable chunks. Well, to the coping, what measures we can take, let's talk about the in the social distancing our ways people are slowly discovering and developing how social capital can be built right back up again and you can you can talk to it i have some anecdotal kinds of experiences of uh, mm-hmm. elders elders i've known for a long time in my neighborhood i've been in this neighborhood for decades now and i've checked in with each one of them and they mm-hmm. they were it's mm-hmm. a sort of like they either were glad to hear from me and or they expected to hear from me and so mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. I mean it was, it was a lovely I, I thing think, happening there yes yes I think that that is a very positive outcome of this I, I know that my husband reached out to our next door neighbors who are quite senior um, by phone a couple of times in the last week and I would say probably more in the last week than in the last year And I just heard about this morning the possibility of people going on virtual first dates, um, being encouraged by dating apps. I mean, these are ways in which we are reaching out to our communities rather than just being isolated. I've heard about some really wonderful ways in which people in Italy are coping with their crisis. I understand that. At a certain time of day, people are going out onto their balconies and singing. There are ways in which we will cope. We're a resilient community. We are resilient individuals. I think that um, we will we will certainly get through this like we've got through other crises. I think that it's it's just hard to predict. Again, as I said at the very at the outset, what makes this so challenging is we don't know how bad it will get or how long it will last. And so during those periods, we will figure out ways to pull together, even if it is uh, standing six feet apart. For those of you who just tuned in, my guest is Dr. Roxanne Silver, Professor of Psychological Science, Medicine, and Public Health, Advanced Program Associate Director talking about how we are managing with the public trauma of the COVID-19. So I want to give you this chance to talk about the National Science Foundation grant you've just received, that you're studying this unprecedented situation. Good thing you're on this. Tell us about the study. Mm. Yes, thank you. Just recently, I received uh, what is called a rapid grant, Uh, offered by the National Science Foundation. The National Science Foundation is unique in having a mechanism for researchers to apply for funding for rapidly moving targets like we are seeing with the coronavirus outbreak. And my colleagues and I are launching a national study most likely in the next 24 hours, that will look at how individuals across the United States are coping with these crises. What specifically are they doing? How are they responding? What is the role that the media is playing? How are they processing the communications that they're receiving from public health officials? These are all questions that we are going to be exploring as I said, in a national sample, nationally representative sample across the United States, we're going to be rolling out our study over the next six weeks, three different cohorts, and then we expect to follow them over the next several years. And we're very fortunate to have been 
to have gotten in the door early enough to receive the funding, the university administration and the university office of research and the school of social ecology office of research really helped wow. me get this out the door very quickly and uh, we were gratified to be able to launch this uh, very soon well i guess an interesting sort of time frame is you'll be you're starting before a vaccine will be available and if you're saying it goes out several years so there will be a, a vaccination Mm-hmm, in place mm-hmm. in the middle of the study. Yeah, I, I actually hadn't thought about that as much as I've thought about the fact that we really don't know if things will have peaked in six weeks no. or not. No. And, you know, our design was, we actually came up with our design before the crisis had moved into pandemic phase. And so we, you know, we're rethinking things very quickly as well. We're hoping to contribute to the science of the psychological impact of an unfolding threat, an uncertain threat. And we're really um, fortunate to be able to contribute to that science. Well, that is a remarkable thing to be able to cover right now. And I hope that you will give us some time as you're getting findings. And I would like to know your collaborators, where are they located, Roxanne Silver? Yes, all of my collaborators are actually at the University of California at Irvine in the Sue and Bill Gross School of Nursing. Dr. Allison Holman, Dr. Dana Rose Garfin are my co-collaborators on this project. And I have a number of current and former students in the Department of Psychological Science who are assisting me as well. So it, the, everybody knows each other, but it's strictly at UCI campus where this National Science Foundation grant is being taken taking place. Yes. yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. In capable hands. Is that's see that that helps me cope better with COVID nineteen. <laughs> no, you're getting you. getting a hand there. Well, I thank you so much for taking this time. You didn't have because you've got to get that grant up and running. You said within twenty four mm-hmm. hours. Thank you, Dr. Yes. Roxanne Silver, for being on the show today. Thank you for having me. So that my guest was Dr. Roxanne Silver. As I said, she's a professor of psychological science, medicine, and public health, associate director of advanced programs, and she's international expert on how we manage as a public with public trauma. That is my wrap. Stay tuned for Ask a Leader programs, which will continue in archival forms. I prefer directing you, though, to my askaleader.com website for programs that you have. uh, You've got more programs and you've got time. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Be safe. Be healthy.